Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And Hannah... I have a wacky idea for today's episode. I'm ready. Tell me what it is. Since we're digging into the idea of capital in the wizarding world, I propose that we discuss joyful, lovely, nice, delightful things that don't cost a darn thing in the sorting chat. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'll start. One of my favorite things in the whole world is whenever I'm out walking and I see... Somebody's cat sunning itself in the window. (coughs) Kitties in the sunshine, you know? Cat walks in general. Like, I don't know if you have had this experience, but because I have been walking in my neighborhood so much more for the past two years, I have gotten a really clear sense of where the good cats are in my neighborhood. (laughs) And by the good cats, I mean the ones that are outside sometimes and friendly. And so I've got like a route that's like, okay, I'm going to go this way. And I'm going to see that like really handsome black tomcat. And then I'm going to loop around this way. And then I'm going to see that like really spherical calico that's like on that street. Yeah. Yep. I love heading out for a little cat tour, (laughs) visiting with all my friends. It's so nice. (laughs) I love a friendly (laughs) kitty so much. Okay, on the theme of things that are free and are wonderful, I'm going to stick with things that I encounter on my walks for the moment and say other people's gardens. Ooh, that's a good one. I love a beautiful garden. I love a wildflower. I love a (laughs) rose. Ooh, yes. Gardens are so beautiful, and I don't want to grow one because I am lazy. (laughs) You are not lazy. You do many things. Gardening doesn't need to be one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Lazy slash busy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Basically, other people keep up the good work. (laughs) (laughs) We're enjoying everything you produce for free. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. Nailed it. A perfect sorting chat. Perfect. Well, dear listeners, you know we love to take big concepts and make them digestible, like a cookie coated with chocolate on one side. But in order to get to that sweet, sweet reward called knowledge, we need to finish our dinner. Marcel, where is this metaphor going? Just go with it. Just go with it. I wrote it when I was hungry. (laughs) Okay. So in order for this metaphor to make a lick of sense, we have to first do our revision. Okay. Folks, today 
we're returning to a question that has challenged us since the beginning of this series. What's the deal with the Weasleys' class status? Are they working class, impoverished gentry, or something else altogether? To answer that question, we're going to add some new critical tools to our discussion of, well, class. But first, why don't we do a quick review of what we already know? Great idea. So we discussed class way back in our fourth episode, where we explained that Western society is organized hierarchically in terms of this ideological understanding of a thing called class. What that means is that power is organized from the top down, with a few on top holding way more power than the many on the bottom. Not only do the few on top hold more power, they also profit directly from the labor of the people below them. We discussed that hierarchy as including the elite, so old money folks, well-connected folks, the bourgeoisie, which is the word for new money, often folks made rich through industry rather than inheritance, the petty bourgeoisie, and these are people who tend to be owners in a, in a fairly limited sense, you know, like landlords, and then the proletariat or precariat, and the precariat is largely those living in poverty. So we drew on the work primarily of revolutionary Marxist Kienga Yamata Taylor, from whom we learned how capitalism is predicated on false scarcity. That's the idea that there isn't enough to go around, so we need to compete for housing, education, and opportunities. And that construction of false scarcity is a big part of the larger ideological project of capitalism, which is invested in keeping workers from uniting and overthrowing the ruling class. So basically, the ruling class or the elite convince the workers that they have to compete with each other for the opportunity to ascend in class status. And that's a way that the ruling class maintains their own power and keeps the workers by whom they are significantly outnumbered from joining up in revolution and overthrowing them. For now. For now. (laughs) So we looked at a few different characters and their class status during our first conversation, understanding the Malfoys, for example, as the obvious representatives of the elite. But we haven't done a particularly holistic look at how class is operating in Hogwarts yet. So I think it might be time for a chart. Hannah, (laughs) did you make me a chart? It's just really a simple three-column chart, I thought. Let's simplify things down and look at the elite, the bourgeoisie in general, and the proletariat, and try to figure out, like, what are the identifying characteristics of these classes in the Harry Potter world? And, you know, we're going we're gonna to focus in in this episode on Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, of course, but I think, you know, we'll be looking more broadly at the series. So one column is looking at trying to figure out, like, what are the characteristics of these different classes in the wizarding world? And then trying to come up with examples, you know, who actually falls into that category. So I thought, because it's kind of the most straightforward, maybe we start with the elite? Yeah, let's do that. Why not? 
So in order to get at the definition of the elite, I basically reverse engineered it from the Malfoys, who I understand as really standing in for that role in the wizarding world. So pure blood, for sure. Old money, well-connected, lots of sort of social power via knowing the right kinds of people. You know, they're there in the minister's box at the Quidditch World Cup. Draco is surprised that the Weasleys also know the minister or are familiar with anybody in power because in their mind, they are the ones who are well-connected. They come from a long line of wizards and they can trace that lineage back. That lineage also has a continuity of house affiliation, which also seems to be a trait of a lot of the old pureblood families that like they're not just an old wizarding family. They're an old Slytherin family. They own these like old wizarding artifacts. And in general, they are really familiar with the inner workings of the world of magic. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that the books tell us that like this is an elite wizarding family. And then much of the rest of the series is like untangling how many other people are connected to these different elites, but they always seem to come back to the Malfoys thing. (laughs) Like that is in fact how elite they are. (laughs) Yeah, they're so elite that they are sort of at the center of the network that defines eliteness. And, you know, they remain there until Voldemort's rise, at which point their status begins to become a little, a little dicier. I'd say the other family that really represents this kind of, like, uncomplicated elite status is one we haven't met yet, which is the Blacks. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that, again, there's a lot of focus on, like, things they've owned for a really long time and the ability to trace their lineage. And, you know, another sign of eliteness seems to be possession of a house elf. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I did a little digging and I found out that there's this thing in the wizarding world. It doesn't appear in any of the books. It's part of the Pottermore nonsense. But there's this thing referred to as the Sacred 28. Kay Alex mentioned it briefly in our episode about critical race theory. But it's something we haven't really delved into yet, mainly because it is Pottermore nonsense <laughs> and we are less well-versed in that. But the Sacred 28 refers to the 28 families in the Wizarding World that are totally pure blood with no muggle intermarriage, no muggle-borns. That list is full of people, you know, names that you would recognize from the Death Eaters who you encounter later in the series. The Blacks are on there. The Malfoys are on there. But also on that list is the Weasleys. Oh, mon dieu. Okay. Interesting. So the presence of the Weasleys on the list of the Sacred 28 brings us back to that conversation about their class status. And when we think about, you know, that list of characteristics of the Wizarding World Elite that I just went through, basically everything but money applies to the Weasleys. Yeah. They're well-connected. They come from a long line of wizards with a continuity of house affiliation. They have old artifacts. They're well-versed in the world of magic. Everything about them is elite. They just happen to not have money. This makes so much sense. 
and is a great reminder that money is not the same thing as class. Yeah. Oh, which is exactly what we're going to jump into today. It's also a really good reminder of how much class and race are completely entangled in each other, right? Because eliteness and pure-bloodedness, which is stands in for the function of white supremacy in this in this book series, are so entangled with each other. Incredible. So along those lines, I suggested that we put in the category of the bourgeoisie folks who still get invited to Hogwarts, still use wands and are magical, still have some familiarity or knowledge of the magical world, but are more like married into Muggle families, have more connection to the Muggle world. That makes sense. So like Hermione. Yeah, Hermione is a great example. Like, I mean, the Creevies for sure. Dean Thomas. Dean Thomas. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's a category I have a little bit more, I have a little trouble with the bourgeoisie, but I have, I think, a pretty clear sense of what I think the proletariat is, because I think in the wizarding world, the proletariat are the wantless. Oh, I like this. I want to dive more into this, but I think if we think of wands as power as well as as access to education. I'm really going to pick up on Kay Alex's reading of wands as education. But if we're thinking of wands as power, then the wandless are the powerless. And that would include muggles, who we see being, you know, exploited and harmed. Starting in this book, we start to see the kind of violence enacted against muggles or the way that they are treated as resources who can be exploited by the bourgeoisie and the elite, by those with wands, even by the nice ones, right? Even the Weasleys are pretty comfortable using muggles for their convenience and wiping their memories. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thinking of them in a sort of infantilizing way, like, oh, bless them, all the things that they do. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And then the other, you know, infantilized and casually used characters are the other kinds of wandless magical creatures. So house elves, absolutely, which everybody in the wizarding world seems to agree are less than everybody but Hermione and presumably the house elves themselves. You know, the merfolks, for example, who we see like have this complex society and yet the ease with which a 14-year-old scares them away using his wand suggests, again, that they sort of fall outside of this this power structure or at the bottom of this power structure. And then squibs, right, who are also also wandless. That's right, and are treated with an incredibly specific kind of disdain by folks with wands, right? So, like, if we think about both Filch and Mrs. Fig. Yeah, absolutely. These are characters who are put to use by those who have wands and who are as valuable as they are useful. And if they cease to be useful, will no longer have any value as characters or humans. So all of this conversation we've been having, this ongoing conversation about how to really make class make sense in these books, I think points to the really important role that magic and the possession of magic plays in the 
social hierarchies, and class stratifications of the wizarding world. Okay, okay. This makes perfect sense because as much as money is important and necessary in the wizarding world, you know, in order to like acquire possessions like a wand, like school books, etc., it doesn't seem to shape the society in quite the way that it does in the muggle world, right? Like my main argument would be the fact that the like galleon sickle nut currency system like doesn't make any sense at all. It's like completely incomprehensible. Not only in terms of conversions, but also in terms of how much things cost. Totally. It makes absolutely no sense how much things cost. Like, it's not thought through at all. Yeah, yeah. And so there are very clearly, like, other systems at work that determine who has value and who does not, and what is valued and what is not. That doesn't seem to be based on things like fixed costs (laughs) or like the cost of labor or anything like that. Instead, there's something, there is something else going on. And it makes perfect sense that it is the illusion of scarcity in the distribution of magic. Yes. I think that this idea of the false production of scarcity is really key. And we did talk about this in one of our, our bonus interview episodes, but recognizing that not everybody will have heard those, we did talk about the generation of false scarcity around wand distribution by the deliberate withholding of wands from a lot of magical creatures who could potentially use wands, as well as the withholding of wands from children who are deemed inadequately magical, because you don't get a wand until you're admitted to Hogwarts, and you don't get Hogwarts unless you are magic enough. And so that suggests that, like, maybe everybody could use wands and that the wizarding world is generating a false scarcity around magic by controlling who gets to have wands and who doesn't. So that's a very strong sign for us that magic plays a really significant role in the organization of power in this series. Just for listeners who are like, you guys, duh. But like, (laughs) I mean, of course. Of course. (laughs) But what we're doing is we're getting at the how and the why and not just the like, (laughs) oh, yes, this entire series is based on magic. Therefore, magic determines power. (laughs) We're getting at the how and the why, people. Listen, we know magic (laughs) is important, but we have to establish the way that it's important using Marxism. So get ready for that. Isn't it cool how a snack can transform your extremely convoluted ideas into something coherent? It's kind of like what we do in Transfiguration Class, where we take a concept that may seem unwieldy, like a hedgehog, and change it into something manageable, like a pincushion. Huh? I'm not convinced you had a snack between writing these segment intros, Marcel. You know me so well, Hannah. But the important thing is that I did have a snack before we started recording. And so I am now ready to learn. Teach me about capital. Fabulous. So I hate to break it to you, but it's old white man o'clock because today we're going to talk about Pierre Bourdieu. Another old white man. Are we a feminist podcast or not? (laughs) 
I know. I know. But I try to think about it the way an old friend of mine did about men trying to, quote unquote, help her. If you want to carry my shit, go right ahead. You're not going to convince me that you're important or that I'm weak, but I'll use your labor if you're offering it. That's legit. I like that. So the theorist whose labor we'll be using today is French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. Blah, 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 blah. Bourdieu is another one of those guys like Benedict Anderson, who I think a lot of us have cited without ever actually reading. And I'm here to tell you, having actually read some Bourdieu, that it's an absolute nightmare and you should avoid it at all costs. <laughs> so he was active in the 1950s through 1980s. So in terms of the wide scale of theory, relatively contemporary. And he was really interested in class and power and the material conditions that allow class and power to persist. Materiality. That's my jam. Yes, yes, I know. We love a material condition. So he was particularly interested in this question of how class is inherited and maintains itself across generations. So, like, what are the actual mechanisms through which the elite ensure that their children are also elite and bar access to those beneath them? And he was really interested in taking these, like, big theoretical ideas of power and bringing them, again, back to the material conditions of our everyday lives. Hannah, so far you're making him sound interesting and practical. Not a nightmare at all. Yeah, I realize that, but it's just because I'm better at explaining things than him. Ah. Borgia loved a wildly confusing diagram and a theoretically (laughs) dense neologism. It's all like cultural fields and habitus, as far as the eye can see. But he had a ton of very neat ideas, and today we're going to focus in on his neat thinking about capital. And how it operates. Okay. Could you start us off by defining capital? I had to look this up off the top of my head. Didn't have a definition. But capital is essentially assets that you can put to use. Okay. The obvious form of capital is money or wealth in general. So land or property ownership, investments, that kind of thing. So a super simplistic version of capitalism recognizes that people with more assets, more money, can do more things and so have more power. Yeah, checks out. But that simplistic understanding doesn't really explain how class fits into the equation. Like, if capitalism is just about having the most assets, then why does it so often play out via things like going to the fanciest schools, enjoying the right kind of culture, knowing the right kinds of people? So Bourdieu was working to account for these complexities by complicating the definition of capital itself, specifically by breaking it down into more types. We've got the obvious one. That's economic capital. That's the money and assets part of the equation. So like the stuff in my bank account and the uh, car, the $500 car that I own. Exactly. And then... In addition to economic capital, we've got these forms of what he calls symbolic capital. And symbolic capital is the sort of umbrella term for forms of capital that are not obviously capital. So if you were going to list all of the assets you had, you probably wouldn't list a PhD or being white 
Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 okay. Yes, yes. I get it now. Yeah, okay. So under the larger category of symbolic capital, specifically he's interested in social capital. That's who you know, your connections. And cultural capital, which is focused primarily on aesthetic taste. That's what his book Distinction is about, is about how taste plays out in the sort of perpetuation of class over time. So Bourdieu essentially argued that social and economic capital relies on cultural capital to maintain itself over time. Basically, like, you can't access those other kinds of capital if you don't have the knowledge that allows you to navigate that world. Okay, yeah, it's like Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic needing Kathy Bates to explain about the forks at the dinner table so that he can, uh, he can appear to fit in. You shine up like a new penny. Hmm. <laughs> a truly perfect example. I love being good at this. <laughs> so here's how Borgia puts it. This is going to be the one and only Borgia quote in this episode, so brace yourself. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. Quote, Taste functions as a sort of social orientation, a sense of one's place, guiding the occupants of a given social space towards the social positions adjusted to their properties and towards the practices or goods which befit the occupants of that position. End quote. Do you see now why I'm not going to quote Bourdieu anymore? I mean, the sentences are so long. <laughs> it's such a long <laughs> sentence. But here's what he's saying in short. Taste marks you as belonging or not belonging. It's the inherent or tacit knowledge that lets you navigate class-marked settings or that gives you anxiety about your inability to navigate them. All right. I'm with you. This is why there is... A difference between going to see a foreign language film and going to see another Star War. Because the one implies a kind of cultural capital, and then the other one implies a sort of mass culture, popular culture, which is translated into not real culture, even though both films might be equally totally bananas. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they might just be. Borgia has this like absolutely hilarious diagram of the cultural field that I love showing students because it is absolutely bananas. Um, it's just got all of these weird arrows, like all of these <laughs> arrows. And it's like, I don't know what the arrows mean, so I can't tell you, but let's all look at it together. Isn't it funny? But it <laughs> it kind of demonstrates the way that like as art becomes more popular and makes more money, it loses its cultural capital. And that's not really what we're focusing on here, but it does point us to another really important aspect of these you know, symbolic versus literal capital, which is how you turn one into the other. Ooh. Because it's not just a straightforward, if you have more of one, you have more of the other. So can you start by explaining a bit more about the relationship of these different kinds of capital? Like, do people who have 
a lot of one also always have a lot of the others. Like more economic capital gives you more cultural capital. Not necessarily. People with a lot of economic capital, for example, but very little cultural capital, that is very little taste, will be sneered at by the elite as new money. The example that pops into my head immediately for that is the Trumps. This is an awesome example because among all of the criticisms of the former U.S. president, one of the ones that seemed most bizarre to me and really stuck out is how he always wanted Diet Coke and wouldn't have wine with dinner. (laughs) That's very weird. That's a very weird criticism of this extremely unqualified president. Absolutely. Also, the fact that he ate his food with ketchup, the fact that he ordered McDonald's to the White House, the fact that you know, their taste was gaudy, his suits weren't well-tailored. Like, people were really obsessed with how the class status of the Trumps seemed to undermine their legitimate authority, which is like, there are just lots of other things that undermine (laughs) their authority. We don't have to, we don't have to think about the consumption of Diet Coke, but we can see how having lots of money does not necessarily translate immediately into having social or cultural capital. My goodness. In fact, talking or thinking about money is often treated as a pretty tasteless thing to do by the elite, whereas talking about cultural experiences is much classier, which is why rich people love to say, oh, I don't like investing in things. I like investing in experiences. Sorry, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know who doesn't care about having things? People who can afford all the things they need. How convenient for them. Mm-hmm. And where the significance of cultural capital becomes clearest to me in particular is in terms of education. Well, that's very convenient, Hannah, because we're both teachers and we're also talking about a book series set in a school. But maybe does that, is that like déclassé? Is that like we shouldn't, we shouldn't be talking about this thing that we know about? <laughs> it's absolutely not de classe to talk about culture. <laughs> the definition of classe, <laughs> which is how I will be pronouncing it from now on. <laughs> and it's also not a coincidence that this book is a book series set in a school because the whole history of boarding school narratives is tied up in the incredibly central role that boarding schools themselves play in the production and maintenance of cultural capital, right? Who goes to boarding schools? The cultural elite. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. I just want to talk about educational institutions a bit. So educational institutions lie at the heart of the maintenance of class formations because they are so good at turning economic capital into cultural and social capital and vice versa. So they are really good at doing the work, which is usually sort of lengthy work. Can't be done overnight, has to be done over time. They're good at the work of transforming the forms of capital. So elite educational institutions are often expensive, but if you attend them, you make connections with the right kind of people and learn the right kinds of things that will set you up for a life of success. Right? So that's transforming economic capital into cultural and social capital. 
this promise, by the way, that education will launch you into a higher class is why so many people go into absolute crushing debt for the sake of a university education. But despite that promise of turning economic capital into social and cultural capital, which you then are supposed to be able to turn back into more economic capital by getting a good job, buying a house, etc., right? They're supposed to move back and forth. Despite that, educational institutions are incredibly hard to navigate at all if you don't already have the right kinds of cultural capital to help you access them in the first place. This makes so much sense. We see this with the barriers that first-generation college and university students encounter. There's all of this tacit and hidden knowledge that you need to navigate the post-secondary education in the first place. If you don't know who to go and talk to, or if you're not used to just being able to go and ask, like, excuse me, who do I see about this issue that I'm having? Like, nobody nobody is just born with this, uh, with this knowledge. And despite the fact that people with lots of symbolic capital often do also have more actual money, they tend to pay less for school because part of the capital, you know, the symbolic capital that comes from, you know, having parents who also went to university is navigating things like funding systems. So you're more likely to know how to get scholarships and bursaries and campus jobs and TA ships and do all of these things that are going to offset the cost of your education. And if your parents are university teachers, you can often get free tuition. So it's super not a coincidence that the children of people with PhDs are like significantly more likely to also get PhDs. It's like the top indicator of how likely you are to get a PhD is whether your parents had a PhD. Hannah, we're very special, you and me. Oh, yeah, 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 that's us. <laughs> so, like, the kinds of education that allows students to thrive in grad school starts so early, and it's facilitated throughout your life by going to the right kinds of schools. So, like, fancy, private, elite, well-funded schools and learning the right kinds of things and having the right kinds of connections. So, like, you know, the Ivy League system in the U.S. and the Oxford-Cambridge-to-government pipeline in the U.K. are great examples of this. We see that the elite maintain their elite status by maintaining control over an elite educational system that perpetuates class and power over time. By the way, if folks want to read the work of a much better writer who is also a sociologist of educational systems and power. I really recommend checking out Tressie McMillan Cottom's work, which is all incredible, but particularly her book, Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. She's such a great and clear writer and, and applies a lot of this thinking to like contemporary issues. <laughs> Just if you're going to read something, don't go, don't read Borgia. <laughs> Go read Tracy McMillan Cottom. You'll be so much happier. This is great advice. I'm going to order her book from my local bookseller. One day I hope to be as good a writer as Tracy McMillan Cottom. <sighs> I think we've got a handle on the relationship between cultural, social, and economic capital. I don't like it, but I think that I get it. That's <laughs> yeah, bad. But what does all this have to do with the complications of class in the wizarding world? You know, Marcel, that is a great question. And one I think we can better answer by taking our conversation back into the books. 
What a great segue. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Now it's time to see if snacks really do improve our brain function. Hot tip, they do. You need to eat in order to do literally anything. Let's put our nourished brains to the test in owls. Woohoo! So let's start off, Marcel, before we dig into, you know, particular scenes in The Goblet of Fire. Let's start by making some higher level connections between like the wizarding world and the system of cultural, social and economic capital. Let's come back to this question. What's the role that magic plays? Okay. All right. I suggested back in revision that we can think of class as being really connected to wand access. And that really ties in to what Kay Alex said about wands being a metaphor for education in this series and what we saw about the centrality of educational institutions. So in the wizarding world, wands are the thing that gives you access to these elite educational institutions. And so wands are the thing that allow you to gain access to connections, right? Social capital, knowing like any wizards at all, let alone the right kinds of wizards, to the cultural capital of like understanding the wizarding world, knowing how to comport yourself in it. Yeah. I'm also thinking about how they allow you to prove your worth. And so thinking about the kind of bourgeoisie wizards, so like muggle-borns who are accepted into Hogwarts. Yeah, the wands and their and these, you know, folks' ability to use their wands provides an opportunity to prove themselves as exceptional, right? So that's like where Hermione comes in. Yeah. Cultural capital continues to play a really important role in the wizarding world. And I, I think we can think of cultural capital in a lot of ways. It's right, having the right kind of knowledge, right? And so in the wizarding world, it has less to do with taste than it does with knowing about this elite world at all. Like, have you even heard about it? Do you know what these things are? And the restriction of information circulating between the wizarding world and the muggle world, the statute of secrecy, prevents the movement of cultural capital between those worlds. And so it means that muggle-born wizards are structurally excluded. They don't have access to that form of cultural capital. That's right. Because it's forbidden knowledge for them right up until the moment they find out that they're wizards. And we don't even know how the decision gets made for which muggle-borns are magic enough to come to Hogwarts. That remains a mystery. I mean, unless there's some nonsense on Pottermore, which, like, sure, 
maybe there is. But I'm sure there's some nonsense on Pottermore, but it's going to be inherently nonsense. And we know that people are drawing like semi-arbitrary distinctions, right? We've got these examples of like, Lily was magical enough, but Petunia was not. Neville comes from a wizarding family, but there was concern he wouldn't be magic enough. The existence of squibs tells us that somebody's deciding which families are or which children are magical enough and which ones aren't. And those born without the cultural capital of knowledge of the wizarding world can compensate through other forms of capital. So like Harry in part compensates by having wealth that he can just buy his way into belonging by like getting a fancy broom. Well, he's given that broom, but he's given that broom by a wealthy relative. He does buy his first broom, right? Buys his first broom and then he's given a better broom. Yeah. Your point about elite families really comes to the fore here because Harry doesn't have to do as much proving of himself as Hermione does. He might feel like he does. (laughs) But he does not. Whereas Hermione has to like constantly work to compensate for being muggle-born, whereas Harry just happens to have been muggle-raised, but he doesn't need to like prove that he belongs at Hogwarts, you know? Absolutely. Harry comes in with a vault full of gold and very quickly starts like inheriting magical objects from his long wizarding family, right? He gets the invisibility cloak, which is, you know, a magical artifact. So he is much closer to the world of the Malfoys than he is to Hermione's experience. Totally, yeah. But what lets Hermione ultimately prove herself is, I think, this, like, other form of capital that we're suggesting might help us understand class in the wizarding world, which is magical capital, which is Hermione is the brightest witch of her generation, right? She is really good at magic. God, this is very, very true. She is. She's like the top of her class consistently. And I can't remember which book this happens in, but even Lucius Malfoy scolds Draco because he let a muggle-born excel in class above him. Like it's, it's very weird. If we are thinking about access to wands as being the thing that divides the working class from the bourgeoisie, then Hermione is somebody who, in terms of magic, was born working class and is now attending an elite institution. And she has to work twice as hard as everybody else to prove her place there. And despite that, people remain deeply suspicious of her because she doesn't have the appropriate class background that roots her in the wizarding world. So she doesn't have the relatives. She doesn't inherit the objects. She doesn't have the sort of lineage of belonging to a particular house. She doesn't have any social connections because her parents don't have any social connections. So she is, at best, new money. But Harry's not. Harry might feel like he's new to the wizarding world, but he is old money. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to get into some scenes? <laughs> yeah. 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 Let's, <laughs> let's bring this back a bit more specifically to the Goblet of Fire. 
and think about where do we see class really playing out in powerful ways in this book in particular. I really want to talk about the Yule Ball. Wonderful. Let's talk about the Yule Ball. So the Yule Ball is its whole is a whole thing, right? It's not just a dance. It is also this opportunity for these young people to get dressed up and play at being adults, I guess. And we see how complicated wealth is when it comes to access to nice things. So like Ron's moldy dress robes, for example, moldy and lace trimmed dress robes. And then Harry has these like really nice bottle green ones, which are very fancy, which he has access to because Mrs. Weasley buys them for him with his money, (laughs) which I find really funny. (laughs) Which, note, tells us that the Weasleys have good taste. (gasps) Good point. Oh, damn. Yes. Yes. Molly buys Harry his robes, and the robes are lovely and appropriate. That is a great point. And coming back to the idea of magic being the key indicator of power and not money, we can think about how Hermione is able to transform herself, not by purchasing a really fancy dress, but by a, like, she's all that kind of makeover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she it's, it's her ability to use magic to transform her physical appearance that like shocks everyone she's unrecognizable yeah and presumably if ron were a slightly better student who was a little bit better at his charms he would have been able to do a better job of charming the lace off his moldy old robes they wouldn't have looked so terrible part of what we are seeing there is that one of the characteristics of Ron is that he does not comport himself in a way that is appropriate to his class status. He hangs out with the wrong kinds of people, and that's the Weasleys in general, right? They are like class traitors because they hang out with the wrong kinds of people. They don't care necessarily about performing their class in the right kinds of ways. But Ron also just doesn't comport himself with a sense of inherent belonging that he could because he comes from one of the sacred 28. He could walk around being like, fuck you, the Weasleys couldn't belong more, right? He has access to that power. He's not accessing it, but not accessing power that you have doesn't mean you cease to have it, right? So I think part of that is, like, Ron is so anxious about his status in Hogwarts that it becomes possible to say, like, oh, the Weasleys don't have as much power. But I think those two things are not the same. Yeah. If we think about Ron in this book as compared to Fred and George in this book, like, Fred and George, they don't suffer from that same sort of imposter syndrome that Ron has. And we don't get any indication that their dress robes are any nicer or any worse than Ron's dress robes, presumably they're just very competent. And so they just like take whatever their mom gives them and then like, you know, whips it together. (laughs) 
Yeah. And we don't really see them getting bullied. Like, they're athletes. They're popular. They easily get dates for the Yule Ball. Right. They navigate those social spheres with a great deal of ease. And part of that ease of navigation, again, is just the the many forms of symbolic capital that they have access to. Individuals might relate to that symbolic capital differently, but that doesn't mean it ceases to be there. There's another moment at the Yule Ball that I find really interesting, which is how gaudy pansy Parkinson's dress robes are. Oh, remind me. I can't remember. Okay, so I'm going to read you a description of the Slytherin dress robes that we see at the Yule Ball. Malfoy was in front. He was wearing dress robes of black velvet with a high collar, which in Harry's opinion made him look like a vicar. Like a vicar. (laughs) Pansy Parkinson was clutching Malfoy's arm in very frilly robes of pale pink. Crab and Goyle were both wearing green. They resembled moss-colored boulders. That's not very nice. It's not. Harry is pretty mean. But (laughs) I think it's really interesting in that moment to see that the Slytherins don't seem to be necessarily that well-dressed. Or they're not well-dressed in Harry's eyes. And his criticism of them is a criticism based in taste, right? So it's this moment when Harry looks at these other students and is like, "Mm, those are very frilly, and he looks like a vicar. (laughs) I mean, Harry, when you become such a snob. But in terms of access to magic... And all of the things that come with access to magic, the ability to control your appearance in the way that you want, the ability to attend the school, the ability to get jobs, the ability to cure yourself of all mundane ailments, travel around the world uh, instantaneously with a mere thought. Like, the enormous form of power that is filtered through these schools Hogwarts is an institution that is all about turning people into snobs. (laughs) Like, it's about reinforcing the line between those who belong and those who don't and stabilizing that line so that it feels naturalized and inevitable. And the production of that, belonging or not belonging, we see getting, like, navigated at the Yule Ball. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? It's this kind of posturing that's about showing off your taste, showing off your skill, showing off how much you would do or do not belong. I mean, they do have to have dance classes led by Professor McGonagall so that they don't make a fool out of themselves and therefore her. So they don't embarrass themselves in front of the other schools. Yeah. Like there's no practical need to ballroom dance. Is it nice? Maybe. I find it very stressful personally. I am not a coordinated person, but like there's no practical need for it. It won't necessarily help any of these students in their, you know, future magical careers. And that's why it's a class marker and not a skill, (laughs) not a trade. Yeah. 
And in fact, one of the characteristics of elite educational institutions is that they do not train you in practical things. They train you to perform your class properly. That's why we have such a class divide between like the trades and applied education and then the purposefully useless education that the cultural <laughs> elites access. That's why arts education has historically belonged to the cultural elites. And by God, we try so hard to make it relevant. I mean, it's really tricky because trying to make arts education relevant almost immediately becomes playing the game of capitalism and agreeing that we can reduce the usefulness of education to its ability to get you a job and how it like converts into money on the market. But a refusal to recognize the need for practical education is an inherently elite perspective. It's a real, it's a real trap. But, you know, we joke all the time about how useless the education at Hogwarts is, right? The fact that they're never taught, like, math <laughs> or writing. They never learn how to care for themselves in any meaningful way. <laughs> nothing, nothing. Like, do all of these students stop learning to spell at... <laughs> The age of 11? <laughs> they stop learning how to spell, but they start learning how to spells. <laughs> <laughs> well said. But if we think about if magic is the symbolic capital in the wizarding world, and the purpose of elite educational institutions is to reinforce the possession of symbolic capital by the cultural elite, then it makes more sense that this school wouldn't be making any attempt to provide a practical or robust education, but would just be ensuring that these students have access to the symbolic capital of magic. It doesn't matter if they can't spell. <laughs> as long as they can, spells. So the other scene where I think we really see this magical capital at work is the weighing of the wands. And that is a scene where we literally see the moral value of each of the champions being equated to these wands, right? How well made they are, what kind of magical substance they have in them, you know, whether or not they can do a spell, <laughs> I guess. But really just, like, whatever. Ollivander's weighing the wands, but, like, that activity seems to have no practical function. It just sort of, like, ceremonially marks all of the champions presenting their wands and saying, behold, I have a wand. It doesn't move the plot forward in any meaningful or useful way, it's just like an extended dick joke. Or like, we've turned it into an extended dick joke. But it's not like, oh, this wand has been tampered with, and now there's a new mystery to solve. It's just like... I mean, I think that its narrative function is to remind us, in case we forgot since the first book, that Harry's wand is connected to Voldemort's wand, so that then when the Priory Incantatum happens at the end of this book, we recall what that connection was and can sort of make that link. Okay, I buy that. That checks out. But if we think about it, like, as part of the 
larger ceremonial process of the Triwizard Tournament, which is itself all about these three schools competing to establish which one has the most magical capital. Mm-hmm. It's like, in order to even access that status of being a champion, your wand must be ceremonially weighed. Wands are, like, so, like, overburdened with <laughs> symbolism in these books. It is the weighing, both literal and symbolic, of the wands. And what they're being weighed with is the significance of symbolic capital. And so I think this thinking about symbolic capital in the wizarding world helps us narrow in a bit on why Hogwarts is the appropriate site of this narrative, because cultural elites are made or unmade through elite educational institutions. That's why they matter so much. That's why so many of these stories circulate around them. But also because it helps us go back and answer those questions of like, what is the deal with the Weasleys? How can we understand Hermione's relationship to power in terms of class? It's once we introduce magic as the primary and most significant form of symbolic capital in the wizarding world. And we can see how, like, access to wands and access to wand magic allows people to move back and forth across these stratified classes in a way that is a threat to the elite. It starts to make things like the sort of pure-blooded discourse that Voldemort and his, the rest of the Death Eaters are so invested in, it makes it make more sense. The reason they fear Muggleborn so much is because the upward mobility of the proletariat threatens the totalitarian power of the elite. That if any Muggle, once they accessed a wand, could become magical then wherein lies the power of magic if anyone can have it? Mm -hmm. I really just want to have a quick thought out loud about Snape and how we will come to know later on that Snape comes from like a, a low income household and he, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He's half blood. Yeah. That's the whole. A half blood prince, one might say. <laughs> it's the whole title of a book. Anyway, I'm just thinking about like, I'm thinking about Snape's investment in the elite system and his sort of like willingness to play into the elitism of of the magical world as a sort of means of like ingratiating himself within this community like he knows that he's never really going to belong to it and so at the very least he can commit himself to it and be its lackey and that's, like, the closest that he's going to get to actually belonging. Through the entire series, he knows that, like, they don't like him. They don't like him, but they'll tolerate him. And I referenced this in passing when I was talking about Bourdieu, but something that is really key to the conversion of forms of capital is time. So, like, economic capital plus time equals cultural capital. That's why old money is more elite than new money. And so for somebody like Snape, 
you know, the strategy of ingratiating yourself to the established elite in the hopes that then your children will be allowed to be friends with their children and your grandchildren will be allowed to be friends with their grandchildren. And at some point, time will turn your family into people who belong, even if you can't quite get there in your own generation, in your own lifetime. Ooh, bleak. Listen, capitalism is bad. <laughs> oh my God, has this been about capitalism all along? <laughs> I love I'm picturing right now my undergrads who are always like rolling their eyes at me and being like, we know it all comes back to capitalism. <laughs> but you guys, it does. <laughs> but it does. Anyway, one final note about symbolic capital and its function in this series, which is that if you were ever questioning whether or not this book series is radical or not, the fact that it recognizes the way withholding wands from certain populations as a way of strategically and deliberately denying them power, and yet at no point represents anybody fighting to overturn that system— nor transforms the way in which students gain access to Hogwarts by the end of the series is a pretty good indication of a real failure of any form of radical thinking. Ooh, burn. <laughs> but that's okay because we've got fan fiction. <laughs> Thank goodness for fan fiction. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to NotSorryWorks.com or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at OhWitchPlease. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach! If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out all of you who left us five-star reviews. So you've got to review us if you want to hear my mouth juggle the random combinations of vowels and consonants that you claim to be your usernames aloud. Thanks this week to Kel Laundes, Nisisei, Madison Blessing, and... Abby, Abby Squido. Yeah? <laughs> yeah? Yeah. And thank you to all of our wonderful Patreon supporters for making this show possible. If you want to join those hallowed ranks and hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash please. We'll be back next episode to conclude our discussion of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Can you believe? I cannot. It's wild. But until then... Later, witches! <laughs>